It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. All right. Welcome back, everybody. I am excited. I have Tracy McLaughlin joining me today. Tracy McLaughlin is the number one ranked real estate broker in the Bay Area for the last 15 years. Oh, yeah, for the last 15 years. <laughs> anyway, uh, she's also the best-selling author of the new book, Real Estate Rescue, How Not to Leave Money on the Table. Uh, Tracy McLaughlin has been through two challenging cycles like this, uh, 9-11 as well as uh, 2008. She sold her first $3 million house after the 2008 crash and knows how to move homes during a national crisis. I'm excited to have her on the show simply because there is so much happening right now in the real estate, and I thought it'd be great to have her on the show and uh, kind of get some of her wisdom. Tracy McLaughlin, I'm excited. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be on with you. Good yeah. morning. All right. So, uh, first of all, uh, congratulations on the book, Real Estate Rescue. I love the title, Real Estate Rescue, How Not to Leave Money on the Table. Um, let me ask you this real quick. What was the catalyst? What motivated you, motivated you to write the book? You know, I had seen, uh, you know, having been in the business for over 20 years now, I had seen the same mistakes being made by people over and over uh, in the sale and or purchase of their homes. And there was one particularly egregious incident that I witnessed where I literally saw a woman who I'd known for a long time leave about a half million dollars on the table in the sale of her home. Uh, the first offer I brought her as a buyer's agent was for 5.1 million. She ended up selling it to a second set of my buyers 10 months later for 4.6 million and or 4650. And I, I remember saying to myself, gosh, I hope her friendship with her agent was worth a half million dollars because that's what it cost her to be her friend. You know, people make these random decisions in terms of how they're selecting agents and reputation, you know, excuse me, in, in, in areas outside of reputation of the agent. So in this case, it was somebody who had listened to her divorce woes for a year, who was newly licensed, really mismanaged the transaction. And when I saw that, I thought, there is a book in this. I've seen this so many times. I'm, I'm really ready to write a book about it. Yeah. You know what? And, and that's amazing because, again, I think this is a very common thing that a lot of people do because, you know, the old saying, we, we want to do business with people we like, know, and trust. And so you hear you have a friend that you do know and you like and you trust. And so you believe in them. But sometimes some of our best friends, because lack of, of experience or ego or whatever, ends up costing us a lot of money. And so it's just one of those things that uh, we have to be aware of. Uh, a good friend is not always your best representative. That's right. I mean, think about how much discretion is involved in how we select our lawyers or our doctors or our, our money managers. Um, you wouldn't just toss that off to somebody, you know, who had just recently been licensed or had just completed their medical degree and was doing their first surgery. And yet people don't give that same amount of forethought to who they're selecting to represent you to uh, buy or, or sell a home. Uh, so it's it's critical that people do the homework, that they check out 
you know, the references for who they're interviewing, uh, go back and call, you know, five or six clients of the person, ask how often were they there? How often did they communicate with you? How good are they with managing money? Because actually, if you look at what we do for a living, we are people's money managers. Uh, 40% of America's wealth is tied in its principal residence. And so somebody, when they are selling and transacting that, they are managing your money. And we should have a lot more vetting that goes on in our industry for people doing that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I love that. All right, so let's talk about this. Uh, right now, we're in this middle of this crazy environment. Uh, we have a, a national pandemic. Uh, we have massive job loss. Um, what, is, what is your strategy or what is your advice? How are you helping home buyers and sellers move houses during this environment. Yeah, it's been a wild ride. Uh, I've never seen anything like it in 20 years, um, almost at pandemonium levels, because all of this is unanticipated, right? You know, when the COVID lockdown started in, in California was first uh, and we went into shelter in place, I thought, oh gosh, here we go again. This is going to be another 2002 or another 2008. You know, you're hearing statistics about businesses closing, and um, you know, you, and then the stock market started, you know, started plummeting. I think it was about the third week in uh, in March. So all those things that were happening simultaneously, I thought, here goes real estate. We're about to go down the roller coaster. You know, fall right off the cliff again. It is just so unanticipated that this pandemic would be the ancillary benefit of a, a bump in our real estate market, at least here outside of San Francisco and Marin County and in many other suburban markets around this country. So it was very unanticipated and guiding people in real time can be challenging, right? I mean, people have inherent fear about any kind of change. And all of a sudden you've got people saying, I never thought I'd leave San Francisco. I was a lifetime San Francisco resident. I am out of here. So getting people through it, making sure that they understand that even uh, in sort of more stressful times like this, the inherent things that you need to do to sell a home for, this, for the most amount of money remain. And that is getting house painted, carpeted, styled, staged, making it look as new and updated as you can. Those things are still really critical to your outcome. So we're doing all of that very quickly right now, trying to kind of ride the wave of what's going on uh, so people can optimize their investment. Yeah, you know, and it's. I'm glad you brought up doing those simple things, paint, new carpet or updating the flooring and, and even staging. And it's amazing because I've watched the industry go through these, uh, I guess, call them uh, changes. Because I remember, I don't know, it seems like maybe 20 years ago is the first time I heard of staging and I start seeing the benefits of staging. And, you know, and it's just like any industry where, where you start to see these little changes here and there, but they, they bring on big value. And, and I look at things like staging and prepping a house, kind of like when you go to a very nice restaurant and they present the plate in a very, you know, just a very artsy way, a very fancy way. You know, it's drizzled here and they, and they make it look even more appetizing by the way it's presented. And real estate is essentially the same thing. I mean, people always always talk about curb appeal. And if your home doesn't have curb appeal, you again, back to leaving money on the table. That's right. Um, in my book, Real Estate Rescue, I mean, one of I, one of the things I'm known for in the country, actually, I'm getting more of a national reputation in this now because I'm getting calls from all over, is how to prepare a home for the market. So in the book, Real Estate Rescue, 
you will see split screen shots of befores and afters, exactly what we spent and exactly what the seller made off that. There is a very documented, you know, anywhere from a seven to $10 return on every dollar invested as long as it's invested wisely. And th this is really the caveat here. You have to have somebody guiding you who understands that. You cannot just write a check and say to an agent who doesn't have a lot of experience with this, go ahead and tell me what to do to fix my home up to sell it for the most amount of money. Someone has to be very seasoned with that in their background, design, development, flipping, understanding how to monetize structures. So that's all in the book. And it's, uh, you know, I always say to my sellers out here, if you do not stage a home, and, and I'm talking about a little bit of a higher price point, anything at 3.5 million and over, it will cost you about $300,000 in the resale. And the staging job is 25 to 30,000 for a larger home now. So look at the math on that. It, there's just a huge ROI. Yeah, you know what, and, and it's, I think the other, the other benefit to having somebody experienced like yourself is that you have to have somebody who also has the courage to tell the customer, look, I don't feel comfortable doing that. That's not going to help you the way you think it is. Because, you know, it's, it's, and it's the hardest thing to do when you are an experienced individual to tell a customer, sorry, look, that's just not going to work. And, and I've seen where, where a lot of professionals, especially in the real estate market, where you, you want to be nice to your customer they hate telling a customer, no, that's not going to work. We got to go this way. Based on my experience, this is not going to work. What's your advice to professionals out there in, in you know, in the, let's say in the real estate market, how do you address that to a customer? How do you explain that to a customer when they're maybe heading in the wrong direction? You know, that is the absolute crux of the book I just wrote. So I, just to, to take it, to peel the onion layer, one, one more layer back, here's the issue. Um, because anybody with 60 hours of Anthony's real estate school and being of the age of 18 can have a real estate license, what's happened because of the lack of higher education in our industry and the real lack of checks and balances in terms of what is said to people, because that is established in our industry and not uh, there's not more discernment along those lines in terms of education, what happens is you have a lot of people just blurting things out or saying things to sellers to get the business, to keep the business. People are afraid of losing a listing, so they will tell the seller what they want to hear so that they keep the relationship. By default, what that does is it really subordinates the rest of our industry, the people that are very well qualified, that are very smart, that understand how to monetize an asset. It subordinates them under this umbrella of non-trusting uh, behavior. The, the public doesn't really trust real estate agents. And that's because of the lack of education or barrier to get into the business. So because of that, that, that is the battle that I fight literally every single day in job. Walking in, saying to somebody, I know you trust me. I'm one of the best people in this country at this Please believe me when I tell you that if your walls don't go white, if you don't change out your surface mount lighting to a simple drum shade, if you do not have your hardwood flooring color, you know, to be in favor of what the market wants right now, 
you are going to leave money on the table. And, and, and the crux of this is that the seller is so emotionally attached to what they selected 10, 15 or 20 years ago, they can't see beyond the dated finishes in their home. So they're still in love with it. They're emotionally tethered to it. You walk in wanting them just to do better and you find yourself dancing around this conversation of not offending them, not wanting to lose the listing, but also being honest. And that's why the business is so highly complex and layered. Yeah, you know what? And again, this is where somebody that has some experience, sometimes it's better to walk away from a bad customer than to be stuck with one. Because, you know, if, if you're not willing to be honest with your customer and sometimes brutally honest and say, listen, you know, purple is much, you know, a purple hallway is much harder to sell than a white than a white hallway. Um, or in some cases, you know, uh, crazy colors can cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Sometimes it's just, you know, it, it maybe and maybe that's not that big of a deal if they're willing to lose two or three hundred thousand dollars on a listing. But again, if you're dealing with a customer that is not listening, is not coachable is the word I'm looking for. Sometimes you just have to be willing to walk away from a bad customer. Right. And I always say to people, the first step when I sit down with people is, are you ready to emotionally detach from your home? If you're not really ready to sell, if you cannot emotionally detach from it, I cannot do my job. So when people say, you know what, Tracy, I've, I've had, I've, we've had a great time here. We've raised our children here. We really are ready to move on. Then I say, well, now let's think of this as a bank machine. And it just depends on how much money you want to come out of the machine. It's no longer your home. It's no longer where you made your memories. It is literally an asset and we're going to pump it up and let it spit out as much money as we can. If people are not ready to let go, agents cannot do their job and you will end up suffering, you know, either a loss listing, you'll never sell the home as an agent, or you as seller A or B are going to leave money on the table. I mean, this is unlike any other, if you own apartment buildings, you know, if you own shopping centers, stock assets, nobody clings onto those things in an emotional way. They like, like they do real estate. And that's what makes this so very complicated. It's also why I believe that I buying is not really going to work on a huge national platform. When you've got complex transactions that are higher levels you need the guidance and the coaching and the coming off the ledge. You're not going to, you know, turn your home into a machine and sell it. To, you know, there's too much involved in the business still, in my opinion. So, right. Right. Absolutely. All right. So, so you hit on a couple on a really neat uh, topic there. And also I want to ask you, what are some of the emotional traps that buyers and sellers fall into? Because it's different for everybody. I mean, as you mentioned, the buyers, they raise their family here. They have all this emotional connection. What about the sellers? What are some of the emotional traps that we as sellers fall into? Well, I would say the major emotional trap is overpricing your house. And there's a lot of case study in my book about why people tend to overvalue things that they love. And so overpricing a house, absolutely the kiss of death. I did research all over the country. If you price a home at or even slightly below it's value. And when I talk about its value, it's not, uh, oh, Tracy, this is a Picasso and it'll break the ceiling of valuation. There are no Picassos in real estate. I wrote that in the book. 
the, the reality is it's a numbers-based business. It's very quantitative. It's all about the numbers in your community and anything and everything can be valued based on data. So you start with the data and then if you don't like the number, don't sell your house. But overpricing your home will absolutely cost you money in the long run. That's the biggest emotional trap is over overvaluing your own asset. Uh, the second one is not listening to the guidance and advice, which we've been talking about, of a real expert, somebody who will tell you the truth, make sure you don't leave money on the table and get you to change out those finishes. The best thing current sellers can do is look at Pinterest, house, you know, L decor, look at what is trending in design and make your house knock that off. Spend the money. If you have to take out a loan, do it. Take out a loan and invest in your biggest asset because selling home, you mentioned, you know, in an, an analogous situation, be like, would you sell your used car with ripped upholstery? No, you'd fix the upholstery up. Don't sell your home with ripped upholstery. <laughs> Yeah, I like that. And that's, you know, I'm glad you you brought the uh, car analogy because a car is the same thing. You can look and you can do the research in a car and you can get a fairly close number to what that car is worth. And the fact that somebody's got a custom paint job on it might mean nothing to the new car, you know, to that car buyer. Uh, the fact that you put, you know, a million dollars into that custom stereo, it's not going to you know, increase the price that much to, you know, to a, a, a very common car. Uh, so, so I like that. I, I like the analogy there because you're right. A home, man, there's just so much data that, you know, you can, you can find out what the homes are selling for in that market. You can find out, you know, everything. And so it's, it's, you know, for somebody to say, Hey, my, I, I like your thing. My, my home is a Picasso. Uh, no, no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> but it's very hard to tell people their homes are not Picassos. Yeah. You know, I, I remember when Oprah Winfrey broke the ceiling evaluation down in Montecito. You know, she I think she paid 38 million back with 10, 12, 14 years ago, whatever it was. And everyone thought, wow. And and that people kept using that example. Well, look, Oprah broke the ceiling evaluation in Montecito, and then they all came. Okay, look. That's an ancillary bleed off market off of Los Angeles, right? The entertainment industry, it's in whatever it is, an hour, hour and a half drive. There, there are pockets of exceptions where something like that will happen and then they will follow. That is not the norm. That is the acceptance. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? And again, uh, to me, this is a, a great point uh, because of a celebrity, somebody like Oprah, who is, you know, uh, really, really well known. Some people are going to buy, would buy her house just to be able to say, hey, I bought this from Oprah. I have a friend of mine who overpaid for a car because he was buying it from a celebrity, um, Patrick, Patrick Hemsia. Anyway, he played, he played on, uh, he played Dr. McDreamy on, on, uh, on uh, Grey's Anatomy and um, he signed, he signed the engine block. And so my friend who's a car collector thought, hey to me that added value to the car he overpaid for the car but he knew that going into it I'm, I'm overpaying for the car uh it's got a great story it used to belong to the celebrity he signed it you know it, it's a great conversation piece he, he doesn't drive the car he's a collector and so put it to him it's hey look what i got so again you have to have your eyes wide open all right so so let me ask you this right now is it a good time to buy a house? What is your take? Uh, 
it's absolutely a great time to buy in markets that are already softening as a result of what's going on. Personally, I just bought a condominium in San Francisco. I'm the only one going north across the bridge instead of, or going south across the bridge instead of north. Everyone else is coming out to Marin. I thought, gosh, there's this great building uh, in San Francisco. It's, it's, I think it is the finest development in San Francisco. And there was something that I thought was undervalued as a result of the pandemic. The bold and the brazen will do that right now because these cities will come back. Uh, they're soft right now. New York is soft. Um, San Francisco is softening. It's been so hyperinflated for so many years. What a great opportunity to go in. Even if you're not going to live there, rent it out and hold it because it will come back. So yes, I would, I would say, you know, and, and certainly you can catch the, uh, still, I think some of the headwinds in the suburban markets. I mean, we still have product here in Marin County over the Golden Gate Bridge that is not escalating. I mean, not every house is driving hard storm up in value. There are still, there's still value to be found if you want to live in the suburbs. And certainly that is what's trending right now. Yeah, um, that's the, yeah, I love that. And it goes back again to either doing your homework. You got to find these pockets or have somebody who has the experience to find you these pockets. And back to I like what you said there about the brazen. I mean, you know, Warren Buffett, you know, one of his philosophies is he likes to buy when everybody else is selling. That's what, you know, that's why he's able to get 20 and 30% return on his money is because he's a big believer in, Hey, I'm going to buy it cheap and then I'm going to hold on to it. And you know, when you ask him, Hey, when is a good time to sell? His answer is, I don't know, but I'm going to hold on to this for the next 10 years. It's going to only get better. So you have to have long-term thinking that, yeah, look, even if your property, you know, because of the pandemic and the unemployment rate, all of a sudden your property crashes it's not time to panic. It's, you know, you may, you may want to double down in that market. It might be a perfect time to buy a secondary home, but if you wait it out, like you said, the, you know, that city is going to come back and, and they all do. I mean, we have so much, there is so much history or so much data on the fact that, you know, you look at 2008 when the, when the market crashed nationally, I think it was back up in what, three years, four years. It was pretty right. quick. Yeah, it bounced back here. I remember seeing the market shift back in California. I literally watched it in real time, January of 2013, because homes at the in December of 12 that didn't sell were all of a sudden selling by the end of January of 13. I'm like, wow, I'm watching a market go back up in real time. It was fascinating to watch. So, you know, the other thing I want to mention, and um, this is something that I don't think people think about. Everybody, at least out here on the West Coast, thinks that their home is a liquid stock portfolio. Like, oh, it should constantly go up. There should be liquidity. I should make money. I have people that bought a home a year ago, want to sell it and have commissions to pay saying, no, 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 but it should have gone up by 10%. You know, here's the thing. If you do the math on what it costs to sleep somewhere every night, let's just say we pick the nicest hotel we know, the Four Seasons or the Amon Resort. And, you know, what is that? A thousand or twelve hundred dollars a night. Right. And you don't get a family room and you don't get a big kitchen and you don't get a secondary playroom. And oh, guess what? That bedroom is missing four more bedrooms. And I've done the math oftentimes for people in the high end. I've said, here's what it would have cost you to sleep at a nice hotel for the last 12 years, something like $10 million. You bought this house for 7 million. You're selling it for eight and a half or 9 million. 
isn't that good enough? You got to sleep there really for free. I mean, I try and show people like it costs money to sleep somewhere every night. You know, these houses, they're, they're, we make memories in them. We enjoy them. We sleep in them. We, we don't have to make money on them. It's nice if we do, but that the pervasive mindset of these homes being something other than, you know, what they are. Yes, we should make money on them, but not every home makes money on every trade. And that is something else that we deal with consistently in our business. Talking people off the ledge who are disappointed that their house didn't make millions, you know, over the course of a couple of years. Right, right. Yeah, you know what? Uh, I, I think that's a great point. Uh, I think that there's this mindset, there's this propaganda out there that buying a house is such a great investment. And it can be. And if you're lucky to buy when the market's low and then you sell it, you know, 10 years down the road and you're, you know, again, you got lucky and you're, you know, you, you sell it for 20 or 30 or 40 percent more than you bought it for. Great. But the reality is, if, you know, using your stock analogy, not every stock pays us a profit. We, we, we're buying the stock and hope that it's going to pay us a profit. But, you know, maybe we bought it too high and all of a sudden that stock dips. And you're waiting for it to go up. You're waiting for it to go up and you've had it for two or three years and it's still not going up. And now you've got to sell it because you need the money. You're going to take a loss. That's just the way it is. And sometimes, you know, depending on what your tax bracket is, I tell people taking a loss is not always the worst thing. Uh, you know, and, and so back to your analogy, look, if you were in a property for five or six or 10 years and let's say you just break even, that's not the worst thing in the world. That's exactly right. And I wrote in the book, a broken clock is only right twice a day. You cannot yeah. time markets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. We've talked a little bit about valuations and, and the date and stuff like that. Walk us through what are the true mechanics of a home valuation? Kind of walk us through what you, know, what, what you do. Great question. And that's my kind of one of my favorite parts of the job. So basically what we do is we, I go back about three to four years, sometimes five years, if there's very little inventory, we haven't had significant market shifts here in, in that amount of time. So you go back as long as the market has been stable, whether it's up or down. So we go back three or four years uh, and I look at really like properties. Let's say I'm analyzing a, a done home with current high-end transitional modern farmhouse design, which is what's really trending. And, you know, a pool in a great backyard and indoor outdoor living. So basically, it's really simple. You go in the immediate neighborhood. If you can't find that in the immediate zip code, you start to find like zip codes and then you extract the exact same likeness of the property that you're analyzing. And you bring that in and you and you say, look, there's a real consistent message in these numbers. It's about 1250 a square foot. And, and let me just say the, the term price per square foot throws people off. They're like, Tracy, but this is much more than my square footage. This it, it's complex, but basically what you do is you take the strengths or weaknesses of the asset. So let's say there's about 30 things in the cauldron, right? How do you quantify privacy, quiet, power lines or no power lines, ambient freeway noise? These are things that are they're more difficult to quantify. But you put about 30 things, including the age of improvements, level of improvements, uh, flatness of the lot versus sloped land, all those things that you can imagine. I write about in the book exactly what those are. You put those in a cauldron and then you say, okay, 
the strengths and weaknesses come out at about 1300 a foot or 1100 a foot, or guess what? This house is really in need of updating. I'm going to drop it down to 900 a foot. It's, so that's what you do. You're looking at all those things in a cauldron and you're basically doing kind of a multiplication of those, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. You know, and I want to point something out that I've never, ever thought of uh, until uh, a friend of mine had a personal experience that I've learned from. And you mentioned something that's that most people take for granted, and that is privacy or quiet of a neighborhood. You just assume, hey, I'm buying a nice house in a nice neighborhood. It's going to be quiet. Well, I had a friend of mine who bought a nice house in a nice neighborhood. And unbeknownst to him, they had the the, the railroad track is like, I don't know, it, it is you can hit the train from his backyard. And what they did, what they did is you can't even see the railroad track from his backyard because they put a nice little hill or, you know, mound. And of course, you know, the train comes barreling through his neighborhood at two and three o'clock in the morning. And I'm like, I am so grateful that he had that experience because I can learn from that. And, and it's something that's in the back of my mind. OK, is there something in this neighborhood that could be as loud as a train? Is there, you know, how close am I to a factory or something like that? Because especially for us, you know, for myself, anyway, I'm, I'm almost 60, you know, sleep becomes uh, such an important thing. And to be, be woken up at two or three o'clock in the morning, you know, two or three times a week to me is like unacceptable. It's just like, you know. Well, you know, in California, we are so disclosure oriented out here. If you sneeze the wrong way in your house, you're going to get sued when you sell it. Well, that's literal now. But anyway. But I have to tell you, I, there are disclosures. People have never seen disclosures like in California. I mean, anything that adversely impacts the useful enjoyment of a home, including an incessant barking dog next door, needs to be disclosed and written down, not only by the seller, but the agent does a visual walkthrough. So these are the nuances. I mean, this is why the selection of the best agent who's very knowledgeable about the area and more importantly, or as important, very, very honest with buyers about where they're buying. I mean, I've oftentimes driven people up and down one of the best streets in one of the most expensive neighborhoods in this country. And I'll say to them, I love this street, but on the left-hand side of the street, it's dark by 2 p.m. in the winter. You will see no sun, but except for a couple of hours a day. Is that okay with you? They're not going to get that if they're out here from San Francisco and looking at eight homes and running around with me and talk, talk. And, you know, you have to really point out the weaknesses of homes to people if you're doing your job right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know what? That's incredible. I like that. Uh, that to me is a very thorough disclosure because here in, in the Phoenix market, you don't have to disclose about the incessant barking dog, or in this case, the train that comes barreling through your neighborhood at two o'clock in the morning. And to me, that just seems criminal. I mean, maybe the dog, you, there's maybe not a whole lot you can do about it, but for a real estate agent, not to know that, Hey, there's a train that comes through this neighborhood two or three times a day at early mornings. That to me was just crazy. I, I felt so bad for my friends. But like I said, it's, it's one of those things that we take for granted that we're buying a house and it's going to be a quiet neighborhood. Not so much. You got you to gotta check those things out. It's kind of crazy that the disclosure laws in this country around real estate are not 
consistent. California is, people think it's really overbearing and ridiculous. But honestly, when you're making these kinds of investments, you better know things that are going to that are going to affect your useful or quiet enjoyment of the you know largest asset that you'll likely own. So, yeah, it's really important out here and agents have to write down everything they know. And guess what? The neighbors always tell the truth. So what happens is if you think, oh, I'm just going to maybe not mention that. Guess what? Joe Smith down the street is going to walk in the day the new buyers move in and say, did you know that we saw that roof leaking and we kept, you know, wondering why it didn't get, you know, whatever it is, the neighbors tell the story. So be very careful about non-disclosure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if you're in an area like Phoenix or Scottsdale that maybe doesn't have the same disclosure, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, strength that that California has, then you have to do additional homework. And and speaking of the neighbors, talk to your neighbors, find out what they like and dislike about the neighborhood. They might tell you, hey, this is a great neighborhood, but for the fact that there's a band that lives right across the street and they play from you know from midnight till four o'clock in the morning, or, or or they might tell you about the train that nobody else knows about or whatever. So yeah, I think neighbors are a great way to uh, get data and find out more about the neighborhood. I want to, I want to put up uh, right here. Let's see if you guys want to get a copy of the book, you guys can go to tracymclaughlin.com forward slash book, tracymclaughlin.com forward slash book. And again, um, the book, let me, let me pop it up here. Where, where did it go? Where did, hold on, hold on. The book, Real Estate Rescue, How Not to Leave Money on the Table. Um, Tracy, it's been a blast having you on the show, and I look forward to having you back again. Thank you. I'd love to join you anytime. It's always fun to talk about real estate. Absolutely. Tracy, thank you so much. Thank you.